I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Rosie. Rosie. Come here, sweetie. Come here. Oh, she's coming. Oh, she stopped. Come here, Rose. I just want you... I want to say hi. I just want to hug. I want to commune. Hey. Nice to see you. Friday night, Rosie. We're going to be curled up on the sofa in about two hours. Watching Tin Star. Yeah, it's getting exciting, isn't it? tin star plug there I'm enjoying it anyway how you doing listeners Adam Buxton here just out for a walk with Rose as the sun goes down the nights are definitely drawing in autumn is on the horizon and then winter it's nearly Christmas all right I'm getting ahead of myself let me tell you about this week's episode Podcast number 49, which features a conversation recorded in June of this year, 2017, with documentarian, journalist and unlikely tattoo star, Louis Theroux. Google Louis Theroux tattoos. You'll be surprised how many people have made the decision to tattoo the face of Louis onto parts of their body. Many of those tattoos double as Harry Potter tattoos because... They've gone for a young incarnation of Louis with uh, round specks. And uh, it looks for all the world like a a young Daniel Radcliffe. But anyway, I digress. We don't talk about the tattoos in this conversation. We started out talking about drugs, specifically heroin. And from there, we moved on to a couple of encounters that Louis has had in the past with some legends of the documentary genre. We also talked about podcast documentary sensation S-Town, which caused such a stir earlier this year, although we did focus mainly on the voices of S-Town's presenter and subject, and that's when we weren't um, going off on tangents. And I should say at this point that if you haven't heard S-Town, I'm imagining that most of you podcasts have, But if you have not heard S-Town and you'd like to avoid spoilers, best not listen to the second half of this podcast just yet. And in that second half, there are one or two moments that I considered cutting out today. Um, Specifically, a couple of incredibly bad impressions and a bit of negativity from me as well, which I regret because I'm not a fan of the negativity, but I kept them in because they made us laugh at the time. And we were laughing, really, at how shit we were being, as in useless. So I hope you'll take those moments in the right spirit. I mean, if you are one of the people that we were talking about, then I sincerely apologise, and I hope you'll let me buy you a drink to say sorry sometime. Here we go! Round chat, that's up, round. 
What have you been doing today, Lou? I was up at five to film in a in an anorexia clinic, an eating disorders clinic. That's the new thing. That's what we're filming. In, uh, it's about eating disorders. And is that part of a series that's coming out on the BBC? Basically, um, I think it'll be a one-off. Uh, you know, I've done a three-parter in America about crime, right? which is nearly done. We're just editing the last one. And so... We needed to do another programme and anorexia and eating disorders was in the hopper as a sort of one that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And also because I'm moving back to the States in August with the family, I liked the idea of doing a UK one before we went. Mm. How was the crime scene in America? Whereabouts were you? Three different cities. The first one is Milwaukee, homicide in Milwaukee. It's got a very, very high murder rate. Unhappy days. That is set in Milwaukee. That's right. Very true. Why can't the Fonz sort it out? <laughs> uh, it's now a bit of a homicide capital. It's oh. a sad story. Uh, also, sex trafficking in Houston. Trafficking doesn't mean smuggling. It means pimping, basically. Guys who, who have little bands of women who they basically transport around, move from motel to motel, and then they take all their money. It's a very odd arrangement. They, they, they are, it's like a little cult where the, the, the pimp is in charge of a stable of women who's they, you know, using brute force and psychological intimidation and a kind of cult-like control. He pimps them out and takes their money. Very odd. And the third one is about heroin in Huntington, West Virginia, the heroin epidemic. How long has that been going on then? Because I've started hearing more and more about it. The heroin situation, we're in the middle of a crescendo. So we haven't reached peak heroin. It's gone up year on year for the last, I'm guessing, four or five years. But it's been going on. The opiates epidemic has been going on since the late 90s. Does that include prescribed medication? Well, that's how it started. It started with prescription drugs and then it built because... To give you the background, there were these big pharmaceutical companies which created and marketed these painkillers based on opium, like... Um, Oxycontin, would that be one? is the famous one. Yeah, because one. I was having a glib conversation with Claudio Doherty, this uh, um, comedian, Australian comedian who now lives in LA, and she was telling me about how she'd accidentally taken Oxycontin and spent the weekend tripping balls, basically. It's heavy, heavy stuff. And you have 20s, 40s and 80s. 80s are the most powerful. And it would tranquilize a horse, from what I understand. And based on a slightly misunderstood and very limited study, scientific study, they were marketed as non-addictive, but that's balls. And there was rampant addiction throughout America and especially places in the Midwest and parts of New England and also very much so around the Appalachian Mountains. Something to do with heavy industry and places with large working class populations that get workplace injuries. Right. Uh, they just know, need back, to manage pain Managing and... back pain. So it was a paradoxical effect where they finally tightened up the regulations on prescribing these drugs when they realised how many people were getting addicted. 
but instead of fixing the problem, all the people who could no longer get their OxyContin then started taking heroin because that's what they couldn't get their usual drugs. And th- that led to rampant overdose because from knowing how much they were taking in each pill, suddenly they're getting these very variable quantities of, of heroin. Much harder to manage. Often laced with even more powerful drugs called fentanyl or carfentanil, which is an elephant tranquilizer. And so there were there are literally uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of overdoses and deaths every year from And heroin. did you get a sense of how people make that transition from taking prescribed medication in a fairly formal way, getting a prescription from a doctor or whatever, to going and taking illegal drugs? How, how does that happen? Well, it's, it's very straightforward. I mean, literally, the doctor will say, look, I'm not going to issue you another prescription. And then the person will go off and get dope sick, go into a very heavy withdrawal and then seek out a heroin dealer. Or in other cases, it's people who aren't getting from from the doctors. You know, these places were awash with prescription drugs. Whether or not they were prescribed legally, you know, people would get phony prescriptions or they would just dip into their family members' drugs supplies and, and but then once it was all tightened up, everyone moved en masse into illegal heroin. I mean, you might be getting it from the same dealer. You might have been getting prescription drugs illegally. And then your man says, well, I haven't got any oxys. What about some black tar heroin? Hmm. Yes, please. And then as part of your program, were you in any way uh, speculating heroin? as having heroin cakes? I did not take any. None. Have you ever t- taken any? Heroin? Yeah. No. Would you admit it if you had? Uh, it Would pre- Would be- I admit it if I had? It would be weird, wouldn't would it? Would I? It would Maybe s- it would skew the program. not. Yeah. In, well, here and now or in the program? Just generally. It's not the sort I of thing. I probably wouldn't. It would be fraught with too My many. My kids, you know, are at the age where they hear about stuff. Yeah. But I haven't taken it. No. I think my dad wrote in one of his books about smoking opium. He definitely did in The Great Railway Bazaar, uh-huh. which I remember reading about when I was about 11 years old. So there's sort of a Did your dad ever give you a big of, drug talk? Or did he just assume that you would find your way and you'd be careful? I got very mixed messages on drugs because I was reading my dad's books and reading about him getting high. But then when I started experimenting with weed, hash, gange... What, what, I never, I've never alighted on the perfect word. Have you? What is your favoured cannabis? Doobie. That's the worst. Why is it bad? Because it's just so lame. Doobie. doobie. I, I like, like a bit of doobie. A doobie doobie. <laughs> a doobie doobie. Reminds me of the Doobie Brothers. Isn't I guess that? It does. Why were they called the Doobie Brothers? Because they liked Doobie. Well, that's good then. It just sounds. The Doobie Brothers it were sounds good. Sounds insipid. It does. Yeah. So you want shit. something that sounds I want, hard. I want, you got any shit. <laughs> Hash, anyway, was what we smoked back in the day. Right. And when um, when I told, I think I even went to him and said, oh, yeah, Dad, I went and got high last night. Like, thinking, you go like, oh, nice one, son. Mm. Not only was he not pleased, he became sort of annoyed and, and passive-aggressive. Like, he knew he couldn't really kind of go off the deep end. That wasn't his style he, generally anyway. But he was like, well, what, what are you doing? You could... You, oh, Really? Why? I mean, you could get expelled. I mean, I don't mind you doing it, but you didn't want to come on square, so he had some weird reason for why it was a bad idea. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you, you might even be like, you don't even know if you're getting good shit. Right, you know, like right. something as random as that. Yeah. Because he doesn't have a leg to stand on. 
That's the thing is if you're a parent that's experimented in your younger days, then what do you say? I mean, it's so nakedly hypocritical for a child to hear that. I, the, the sad part is I genuinely went into it thinking, oh, dad's going to be cool with it. Yeah. Me and dad can bond like, hey, son, did you get wasted? <laughs> let's do some hot knives. Hey, yeah, let's hot knife right now. I'll give you a blowback. <laughs> Um, and instead of which, he, he was all huffy about it. Well, Frank Zappa famously, I remember, instructed his children that if they did any drug experimentation, it was to be done in the house. He, really? Yeah, Zappa himself, he smoked a lot of ciggies. I don't think he ever did drugs. He, he famously was anti-drugs. Yeah. And at various points, I think most of the children went off the rails. Did they? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's a sad story because the Zappa clan is is at war with each other now. Is it? Yeah. Um, Over who has the rights to the music and to play the music and this and that. And And which ones have fallen out? The two two boys? I think the two boys and I think maybe Dwee's... I think Gail, their mother, is no longer with us. I think she died, right? But do they both want to play the music? I lost track. You know, Gallagher, the American... He might even be Canadian comedian had a brother and he, he Gallagher's act was basically all prop driven and he would do he things smashed watermelons. he smashed watermelons was one of his famous bits and he let his he licensed his brother to do the act and his brother looked a lot like him as well and and the brother went on maybe even as Jimmy Gallagher or I'm not quite sure what but became very successful and then Gallagher says oh, I want you to stop doing it now and then they've had a huge falling out he said I'm not going to I'm the real Gallagher you know, yeah, a bit like Noel and Liam. Maybe the name is cursed. <laughs> so, God, that's. I mean, I, I I feel as if I've almost certainly asked you before, but how do you stop yourself getting really depressed? Depressed when you're doing stories like this. Where do you find the hope in them, or do you not? Is that not something you have to think about? It's very odd, uh, but somehow or is it because you're an emotionless robot i don't think it's that i think what it is that is that (sighs) the people that we tend to film with have some spark to them and actually some sort of dark glamour even in the world of heroin and don't get me wrong heroin is awful awful drug and it's destructive and it destroys lives and it destroys families but there's nothing in this world that is completely and wholly negative. You know, in other words, there has to be some element of seduction, some attraction there. Otherwise, no one would do anything bad. And with heroin, there's a sort of outlaw glamour that goes with it, a kind of exciting Bonnie and Clyde lifestyle. And the people very often are rather attractive, kind of piratical Keith Richards-esque figures, you know. They're out on the limb, kind of leading lives of of passionate intensity. And most of them are not just taking heroin. They're they're either dealing it or have dealt it or have trafficked it. And they're in this sort of world in which they it's anti-bourgeois, leading a life without consequences. Usually they've got kids that have been taken into care, which is clearly horrible and, and massively destructive but they are they, it's it's hard to put into words but there's a certain um subversive some kind of thrill, weird transgressive charm. transgressive right i mean those are the those are the exciting ones i would imagine the vast majority of people who are struggling are just sort of having a pathetic time of it really also i like to think that 
the other way of looking at it is that you, you're talking about people who, in the act of connecting with you, are reaching out for some kind of hope. Mm-hmm. And they see you as a, a little bit of a lifeline. I mean, that's not the whole story because there's another part of them that may even romanticize their own bad choices and want them memorialized in a documentary, right? That's there. But there's another sense in which they may see you as a redemptive kind of lifeline and that they want to they want help coming out as addicts in some cases they want help connecting with someone who's outside their user drug user circle and this goes across the board because i'm also you know in the other stories there was a prostitute who had a pimp who we filmed with quite a bit and you had the sense that she was just grateful to speak to someone who represented the square world and connect with that a bit. And I feel like as much as I have a slightly maybe unhealthy fascination with the macabre qualities of the of the demimond, I also genuinely think there's and it's not it's not necessarily why I do it, but I think it's p- perhaps why I'm okay doing it, is that you're connecting with someone who is kind of reaching towards the light in some way. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I made it sound quite good then. Before it sounded bad. Right. First of all, you you started off saying more or less they're all like Johnny Depp and they're exciting and it's fun. And everyone should, should be on heroin. And everyone should at least try it. And then I Cause it'll realized be fine. that horse, and then you thought, that dog didn't hunt. So then it became, <laughs> actually, I'm like a therapist. Actually, I'm I'm like Jesus. And I'm the only person that is in, in any way providing any excitement you know, I, I was like, you know, I was only... saying that they're, they're, they're like role models and we should all be badasses because why would you be a square man? You're so square in your boxes, man. And then <laughs> then it became, but but I like to connect with the people because I am light and life to them as a sort of therapist. Uh, you, yeah, you're a therapist. I thought you were turning into uh, Herzog. I don't know what I, I was. Yeah, I was trying to be a therapist. <laughs> So, no, I didn't take heroin. Did it cross my mind very, very fleetingly. Um, It always crosses my mind when I'm doing an extreme story. You know, because going back to Weird Weekends, it was always about participation. And I remember when we did the porn episode and I thought, if I really, if I was a real documentary maverick, I would actually have sex on camera, probably. But you must have thought that through and realised that that would compromise you in so many other ways, that it wasn't worth it. Well, what I thought was, actually, that's quite an ugly thing, both morally and in, and literally. Like to, to, to see that, it's just repulsive on several levels, isn't it? When you think it through, quite quickly you realise... Well, yes, there's an element of cowardice involved in that decision. They would have pixelated you. I don't want to be embarrassed. No, but it's not even like not the it's not the ugliness of the actual testicles, the ball sack, the the glands, the shaft. I mean, it's not that specifically. (laughs) The gleaming shaft. It's not the they call it the brown. It was a horrible term for your your bum. 
not your brown asterisk. It's not like that. But, but it's more just the image. Even if you pixelated everything, you're still seeing a pasty, geeky, bespectacled man uh, on a, top of a vulnerable, probably very damaged porn performer, female. I mean, no one. That's awful. Why are we even That's the way the modern this? world works, man. People love it. Robbie now, Williams said that to me, though, oddly enough. What? That you shouldn't? He said, I can't really do the... the, the, the when I met him, I've only met him once. He said, oh, I, I like your stuff. I just, I just saw the porn one. This was literally about 17 years ago. And he said, but why, why, why didn't you um, have sex? Right. Why didn't you go all the way, you know, and have sex with someone on camera? Because as you know, if you've seen the film, that episode of Weird Weekends, I dress up as a part ranger and I'm in a gay porn film yeah. in a non-sex role. And I also strip naked and get my Polaroid taken and we pixelate the shot of um, the me junk. standing naked, but yeah. I am properly naked. And then I get an offer. I, I get a genuine offer of a role in a sex film that's a rape fantasy film hmm. called Forced Entry. That's sort of the... Oh, yes. who That was the Rob creepy... Rob Black. Right, yeah, a, right. a kind of creepy, off-the-wall... Um, director who wants who likes shaking things up and he goes Geraldo Rivera would do that man Morley Safer would you start naming American journal, TV journalists Geraldo who, Rivera who, wouldn't do no that no way who would have taken a role in a, you know as having sex in a porn film uh, so yeah Robbie Williams thought I should have done it I don't know if he just thought he was saying that well there would be a lot of people online that would like to see that there's probably a whole sub I'm still of- embarrassed about there's a photo of me Naked but for a feather boa. Oh, I remember that in the Time Out. Uh, yeah, I'm still embarrassed about that one. That's not too bad, that photo. That's easily... That's still online, though, right? It's, it makes me cringe. Yeah, you can find it. You look a bit goofy. I mean, you look You just if, said it wasn't too bad, and now it's goofy. Goofy's not too bad. I've been in way worse photos. I mean, maybe not naked, but... Because <laughs> even in the darkest abyss... That, maybe that is... That's getting close your, I, I liked your one. I thought about you. When you have the mind of a wolverine. 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 Why don't chimpanzees ride horses? Horse. I don't know how he would say horses. 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 Why, why don't chimpanzees <laughs> ride horse? horses? Why don't chimpanzees ride horses? Horses. Why horses. don't chimpanzees <laughs> ride wolverines? Wolverines. <laughs> Have you come across Herzog? I did. I had a lunch with her. No, dinner with Herzog when I was in LA. Did you recently? Yeah. No, it was about. It was when I was living there, which was about three years ago. A friend of mine called Zach Penn, who's a screenwriter. And he's also directed a couple of mockumentaries. And he I, I don't know how he knows Herzog, but he knows him. And he put Herzog in one of his films as an actor. And he had a dinner and we went around and had dinner with Herzog. How was that? It was great. I asked him about, because I've seen loads of his docs. I asked him about one in which he goes to an island, a volcanic island that's in which they're about to have a volcanic eruption. And it's been evacuated and they... and. In classic Herzogian fashion, he decides to go there, even with the volcano about to go off, and interview the three or four people who are still there, who've decided to stay, even though they'll be covered in lava, right? And his, he, described, he said, his, and my cameraman said to him, going in and out of the accent, his cameraman said to him, well, what are we going to do um, if it actually erupts while we're there? 
and and Herzog said, "We will be airborne." That was his. <laughs> so he's got like his little trove of anecdotes like yeah. that, and he was so he's quite fun on on that. I, I mean, that was he was quite deaf. Was the other thing, and I remember saying like Werner, Werner, like literally be at the table, Werner, and he what he wouldn't. It was like he was getting a bit embarrassing. Like everyone else, sort of at the table, was aware that. I was trying to get his attention. Were you in a loud restaurant? No, we were just at Zach Penn's house. But oh, then okay. when I said, um, Werner, he turned around. I think he just used to people calling him Werner. Ah, okay. So he actually answers to that better. Not Werner. Werner. Um, and you recently met David Attenborough. I did David Attenborough. I've had quite a... Racking up all the great documentaries. I've had a kind of um, a slightly odd thing where I did an interview with David Attenborough two weeks ago for the Radio Times... And then, literally on Sunday, I interviewed Nick Broomfield. Right, because he was the man when we were growing up. I don't even know if I knew who he was in my teens. Did you? In my late teens, yeah. Did you? The first I heard of him was 93 when I was living in New York when Alien Warnos, Selling of a Serial Killer, came mm-hmm. out. Was he on your radar before that? I think so, because he did the one with the South African... Yeah, um, I didn't know about that one at that time. What was the name of the guy? It's, called, it's about Eugene Terblanche. There you go, Terblanche. And it's called and it the, driver um, and the Leader, the... His Driver, and the Driver's Wife. There you go. So I remember that was a really? big deal. On yeah. Channel 4 or something? Yeah. So he was an interesting fellow to talk to, I'm sure. He was sure. great. And, you know, he's got a slight... He's got a reputation for being occasionally... Um, a difficult interviewee. Um, and I'd been told that by one or two people. But in fact, he, I found him very charming. He, he doesn't play the show business game. and um, But he's got some funny stories. I remember that my, like my opening question was, you know, you've made many different kinds of films in different modes. But there is a thing you are known for. A very quintessential kind of Nick Broomfield approach to filmmaking. How would you characterize it? And he was like, well, you know, I don't really think of my films in that way. I just see films as as problems to be solved. And I was like, okay. I mean, in a way, you could say it was a shitty question for me to ask out of the gate. Because I'm sort of saying, like, do my job for me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, what's that? Who are you? I just thought it would be interesting to see how he characterized his sense of who he was professionally. You know what I mean? Like, I was just curious to see whether he would be able to say... Well, you know, I've, there's a certain approach that I've pioneered, which is first-person documentary gonzo journalism, in which I'm a protagonist in the stories that I attempt to tell. Right? You know what I mean? Yeah. And to get that kind of Wikipedia headline from him, I thought, rather than me doing it, I'd rather hear him do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he also doesn't want to be Wikipedia. And, and actually, fair enough. Is that how you would answer that question then? If you, if for him, no, for you. If no, no. For me, I would say uh, I would say something slightly different. I mean, I, I, I think I'm. What's the term? Ingratiating enough, and I say don't say that necessarily as a positive. That I would, I would sort of step up and say, well, I guess people see me as a kind of slightly fish out of water journalist who gets into scrapes attempting to tell the story. I'm a presenter who likes to get involved in my stories, you know, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be more, I mean, I'm happy to step up and be the cliche. (laughs) Hello, my friend, it's good to see you again. I've got to say you're looking great. I love what you've done with your nipples and your knees and your shiny bald pate. (laughs) 
So earlier this year, 2017, it seemed like everyone was obsessed, certainly in the podcast world, with S-Town. It's a documentary that came out of the This American Life stable, presented by Brian Reed. There was a period when everyone was listening to it where you couldn't discuss it because people would go, Spoilers! Right. Spoilers! And that's like... Do you the... ever say that? No, I don't, because I don't care. No. I just think my it, it'll be fine. It's not going to ruin totally ruin my enjoyment of a thing if I know vaguely what's going to happen. Yeah. I'm, there are times when it takes the edge off the fun. But really, if the thing is fundamentally worthwhile... What did people say before they said spoiler alert? Because they, that's a 10-year... It was just, oh, don't ruin the ending. Yes, don't ruin the ending. Oh, no, I haven't seen it. Don't ruin the ending. <laughs> oh, you ruined the ending. <laughs> that's the thing. Is don't that... ruin the ending. I want to go back to... Like, I'm going to start a campaign to bring back the phrases that predate... The, right. The phrases we use the now. The snappy ones. The more ungainly... Yeah, the ungainly but charming... Old fangled. Yeah, 1.0. Like, what would the others be? Well, like, um, game changer. What would be the... What do people say? It's a game changer. It's a whole new way of doing things. <laughs> <laughs> it's an absolutely new way of doing things. It's a things. completely new way of doing things. Oh, I was talking to Bill last night. He said it was a completely new way of doing things. <laughs> he told you, have you seen it? It's an absolutely new way of doing things. Guys, guys. <laughs> You check this out. This is an absolutely new way of doing things. Why is everyone using that phrase? I heard Bill using that phrase. Just Please, would you head. stop saying it's an absolutely new way of doing things? Why can't we go back to saying it's an original solution to a very old problem? Well, I, I don't think... I think it probably was a snappier phrase than new way of doing things. But the other one I was thinking about was uh, narrative. Well, that's a... Depends on your narrative. They've got this whole narrative. We've got to change the narrative. And I think um, it's that's replaced, among other phrases, version of events, hasn't it? Well, that's your narrative. Uh-huh. So your narrative is... Yeah, that's your version of the this story. This narrative that you're a struggling yeah. comedian, that's holding you back. You've got to change that narrative. Version of events? I don't know, maybe not. But is there narrative not, is so ubiquitous? Is there though. not something implied in the word narrative used in that context that is is a new Concept. idea? No. 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 I don't think so. It's always been around. Yeah. The phrase that is completely unavoidable at the moment is um to be fair. Really? Have you not noticed that? To be fair. To be fair. God, that might mean I'm using it because I hadn't picked up on that. Haven't people said that for millennia? I don't They've feel like it. That. Have they? No, I don't think so. I think I think it's in the last really? couple of years. To be what fair. about not being funny? Not being funny. I had a builder who said that, and you're like, God, Glenn always is not being funny, and then you find yourself using it. That was around for a while. That that was the to be fair of its day, and then that. How would you use not backseat. being funny? When you say something bitchy, I think, isn't it? Not being funny, but it, it wasn't very... <laughs> that meal was kind of bad. Um, no, is that... That doesn't, that, sound, that doesn't right. sound right. <laughs> not being funny. Not being not funny, be, but being her funny. face looks a bit weird. Isn't it? I feel like it's it's just laying some... It's excusing yourself know. from a bitchy comment, Do you usually. find you use the Urban Dictionary? So I use it quite a lot. to Online? It's an, oh, occasionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To find out what the hell things mean. I do it with acronyms all the time. 
It took me ages to figure out what SMH was. SMH. It shakes my head. Ugh. Shakes my head. Shaking my Shaking head. Shaking my head. Yeah, that's a new one on me. We talked about that. One of the first things we did on the podcast was talking about. Yeah. Really? Really? That w- seems to have. I think we stamped it out. It's subsided, hasn't it? <laughs> I feel a bit bad. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone was having really? fun. Really? What about super as a prefix? Oh, it was super annoying. It was super fun. It'll, it was super great. I'm going to go on Twitter right now and I'm going to see what people are saying. And this is just the people I follow. So it's a skewed representation. This is the uh, snowflake echo chamber libtard bubble. Do you, do you follow a lot of um, sort of alt-right? Uh, I, I, I tried, but it was too depressing. I mean, I, I end up muting my fellow libtards a lot of the time. I mute, I mute quite a lot of people. Is it okay to say libtards? No, but it's what the alt-righters call us. Right. No, I just wondered. They're baiting the snowflakes by saying something that refers to or has the same I wonder how long it takes for something like, um, you know how words like bling uh, becomes mainstream, like David Cameron sort of would use it, or uh, what's another, chillax, or, uh-huh. or even jazz terms and hip-hop terms, right? Do words like bitch, does that then soon become... And queer is sort of okay now, kind of. Is it? Queer theory or... Oh, yeah, yeah. Queer studies or... Is gen- it still okay? Because that, that, that world changes very fast. Gender queer. I don't know. Well, What's... maybe it's one of those ones where I wouldn't use it, but... I don't think bitch is okay. But I, it's not now, but I've got the feeling... Because you know bitch has become sort of gender neutral. Oh, he's such a little bitch. No, but that's very problematic, though. Well, I, I think... agree. But in 20 years, don't you think probably it's going to be normalised? Well, what's a, a good example of something that is no longer... Um, that's been defanged? Problematic. It's been sort of um, irradiated yeah. and made safe? Uh... I don't know. That's a great question. Asshole. No, that's still no. pretty strong, isn't it? Fuck face. What was rude? <laughs> fuck. Fuck face. No. Mo- I mean, most things you can't really. They get phased out. They don't you- get liberal. Well, yeah, maybe you're right. Ho? No. Ho. That's no good. Man ho? <laughs> Is that even a phrase? No. Should be. Um, Maybe you're right. I'm going to reverse that. That doesn't work, does it? I had a theory that because terms like certain hip hop, bits of hip hop ease. Yeah. Like, you know, get your groove on. I don't know. That's not even hip hop. The only one I can think of is bling, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. I was watching... um, Swag. I was watching It'll Be All Right on the Night the other day, which is now hosted by Griff Reese Jones. Okay. Still... Some funny stuff on that show. I used to love that. Yeah, I really did. Dennis Norden is still alive. Is he? And listens to Mark Maron's podcast religiously. I am reliably informed. <laughs> no that, way. That's like his, he's plugged into comedy through Maron. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. There's something quite sweet about that. Yeah. I think he must live in America, maybe. Uh-huh. Maybe he's just got family there. I always liked him. and I, and, and yeah, it was an amazing show back in the day when... The idea of things going wrong on TV or films was just unimaginable. It, it felt was. as if you were peeking behind the magician's curtain. It really did. And it was so thrilling, wasn't it? Oh, it was intoxicating. Oh, my God. And now you just can't even... 
conceive of what that would be like because it's a great recollection I mean, that was like i mean that when you saw that it'll be all right on the night was on it was like kiddie crack wasn't it, it was like, <laughs> yeah. i'd be hyperventilating with mirth and excitement right and you'd see moments in blue peter or whatever where peter purvis is saying bloody hell or yeah, they have to bleep by him the or- dog or someone advertising a sweet and it comes out of his mouth or oh, and news presenters getting it wrong or falling over or yeah oh my and god like, <gasps> this is amazing <gasps> i can't believe they're showing this it felt like illegal or something and now of course it's so banal but i was amazed that watching the show the other night with griff Rees jones presenting that there was still some pretty fucking funny stuff on really? there a lot of funny things on qvc and places like that you know because obviously there's so much around now yeah. it's just a question of finding it there's but there's there's loads of stuff i guess the cachet as far as tv is concerned is 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 completely torpedoed by the internet because yeah. everything becomes an individual viral clip if That's it's any way right. funny so you've probably seen it already but there were quite a few things i hadn't seen before Anyway, I mention it only because in one of his links, and I use the term loosely, like, oh, my God, I don't know who writes those links. Good luck to them. Uh, I'll say that again because it's too bitchy. (laughs) 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 They're fucking awful. (laughs) They're so fucking shit. Maybe I won't say it again. Cause, no, I don't know. I've, I've retreated from it. Oh, Jesus. Someone, what, do you think that yeah, guy's going to be listening in? Like, like, I love Adam Buxton's podcast. There's a possibility. Be, oh, it's a new one. I'm going to listen to it. And then get to that and be like, <gasps> he's, talking, he's talking about Griff's show. We wrote the links on that. Oh, cool. Oh, he liked it. But, but maybe he knows it's shit. Maybe he's fine. He must do. Oh my god, they're so bad. Anyway. <laughs> you got to keep this. Because I, I would, I've done so many things. We've all that, done things that are, that are shit. shit, but I wouldn't like to hear people dragging them up again and talking about them and laughing about them. <laughs> what, what's so shit? What's so shit about them? So I'm trying to think of a good example. Oh man. Um, so I mean, if he's going into a clip about news presenters screwing up, and he'll be saying something like. Now, in the world of news and current affairs, often looking for a good... This is useless. <laughs> this, is like my, this is like my concession to the person who wrote the links, is I'm doing a terrible but job. it's hard to do that stuff, don't you think? Of course it's hard. Of course it's hard, which is why it's unfair to trash them. Because it is hard, and it's, it, you, you would think it would be easy, but no. Anyway, the reason I mentioned it'll be all right on the night was because in one of Griff Rees Jones's links, he used the phrase amazeballs in there. Right. And so I thought, oh, okay, there you go. That's the end of amazeballs. You know, these things have a shelf life. Yeah. It was like, um, and Joe, I think Joe reckons that he started amazeballs. Joe does. I think he does. I think he said that can't be right, can it? He may well think that, but he didn't, did he? I don't think. I mean, he. I think if he if because he reckons he used it like way back well, he, when we were on the radio <clears throat> pre overground amazeballs. Well, he should look into that. He certainly coined the phrase "idiot hole," but that's never gone overground. Idiot hole. Yeah, 
Yeah, that no one uses that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good phrase. It always used to make me laugh. So anyway, what we were going to talk about, though, before we got sidetracked there, was S-Town. Um, did, you, did you listen to the whole thing? Yeah. And did you enjoy it? I really enjoyed it. Yeah. What's I thought it was kind of amazing. I mean, it's beautifully crafted, written, amazing intimacy, just a I mean, lot of, it, clearly a lot of thought and work had gone right. into it. But it, essentially it was, it was more or less just a portrait of John B. McElmore, this fellow from Woodstock, Alabama. So it turned out, yes. That promised, it, you could argue it promised to be a bit... It promised to be an expose of, of small town corruption and... Uh, well, of which in, there was some. Was there? I think. None that I can recall. Nothing oh. categorical. And then it turned into a bit of a treasure hunt after the yeah. fellow killed himself. Yeah. And um, he was unbanked, so there was gold lying around. Yeah. Have you Googled his maze on uh, yeah. Google Maps? I Googled. Yes, I did. I go- I wanted to see what he looked like. Yeah. Because he's got such an amazing voice. And you just, you, I couldn't quite conjure him up in my head. And he turns out to be a sort of sexually ambiguous, but rather charismatic figure. And um, talks a lot about his tattoos and his piercings. So I, I looked him up on google images can you do an impression of john b macklemore um what would he you have to get a phrase okay i'll give you a phrase just say the phrase in a normal way all right i was interested in the astrolabe sundials projective geometry new age music climate change and how to solve rubik's cube there it is written down i was interested in the astrolabe sundials projective geometry New Age music, climate change, and how to solve a Rubik's Cube. That's just me doing a southern accent. Yeah, that was too... I can't do it. You haven't got the sibilance in What there. is it? He had something that was... It was a very musical... Yeah, it was a kind of sing-song quality oh, sometimes. That's good. I was interested in the astrolabe, sundials, projective geometry, new age music, climate change, and how to solve Rubik's Cube. You know, and it would kind of Climate go, change. Climate change. That's a, climate change. It's a little bit like a cross between Mr. Garrison and Mr. Mackey. Yeah, that's good. From South Park. I mean, Park. and he did a thing where he would laugh almost in derision. Like, it's kind of like, yeah. who, who's going to get your food? First, cancer or 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 Harrier Jim Jim shitting on your face. Yeah, that's like, right. You kind of had that um, exactly that that kind of um, la- laughing out of a macabre contempt for life. A bit like Bill Hicks. I, he reminded me of sometimes his delivery, not yeah. the not the accent necessarily. It's kind of like a, a, a shit show where you're you're the main exhibit. And you're gonna choke on your own vomit, and, and it's quite hard. It's to- hard, isn't it? <laughs> The Arctic ice is going to be pretty much gone in a year, and and no one really seems to care about it. It's hard. But why though. why would you even care about that? I mean, it's just it's just eternity, and and you being tortured to death by a thousand different kinds of species gone rogue. You know, that's the vibe, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's like people are people are the world's so going to shit, and, and people cynical are totally and corrupt. That it's it's a scabrous, scathing contempt for humanity isn't it here's a uh, little clip of actual john you're gonna use our best bits yeah yeah it's borderline embarrassing Something when you get it wrong absolutely happened in this town Damn. there's just too 
much little crap for something not to have happened. And I'm about had enough of shit town and the things that goes on. Things that goes things on. He's even more on. hillbilly yeah. than I just had about enough about shit town and the things that goes on. I mean, the music of his voice was a big part of what made that whole thing work, wasn't it? Absolutely. And his total sort of emotional availability, his absolute thirst for um, whether it was a kind of intelligent interlocutor, but also a sense of being memorialized. You know what I mean? I think people talked about invasion of privacy. What's the name of the reporter? Brian Reed. Brian Reed got a bit of flack for allegedly being intrusive and, you know, that it was a non-consensual project in a sense, because actually uh, there's a lot of material in it that because he died, you know, he didn't know that that was going to turn out. Details the way about his lifestyle and his homosexuality yeah, and specifically like that. that. Yeah, but just the level of kind of forensic inquiry, most glaringly details about his sex life. Um, there's a sort of, I mean, this may be sh- shaky ground, but a kind of implied consent in the just the sheer sense of permission that he projected, like that he was loving having a chance to share his views, share his world, just to be listened to in that way. Yes, exactly. And then pulling Brian Reed further into the whole world and doing things like showing him the suicide note on his computer and then only objecting in a kind of playful way when Brian Reed started reading parts of it out or something. Right. And saying, oh, you're not supposed to read it out. I just showed it to you. That's not... Yeah, you, you can't use that. Okay, let's put that away now. Right. And then because I, I feel as if I know quite a few people. I was talking to Adam Curtis on this podcast a while ago, and he was describing people with a very bleak worldview, a very pessimistic view of where we're headed as a species. Right. As odierists or people who were wringing their hands over climate change. He wasn't saying that, oh, we've got nothing to worry about. That's not what Adam Curtis was saying. But he was saying that the overwhelming pessimism which you get from some people of, like, we are fucked. You know what I'm so- yeah, talking about? Yeah, He was calling that um, odierism. Okay. And kind of characterising that as, a, as an affectation of a certain type of person. Right. And you definitely... And, and John B. McElmore in S-Town certainly fits into that. Yeah. Totally. Right? Yes. You, you know, going online and, and researching exhaustively these yes. disturbing statistics about climate change and about all sorts of intergovernmental corruption and um, scandals and... Catastrophism cat- is another word for it. Right. And also reminiscent of... I don't know if you ever saw Collapse, Chris Smith's documentary. I didn't. It's worth watching. And Michael Rupert, the main character, is absolutely in the same, is a researcher who specialises in kind of catastrophist thinking and who's figured out that humanity is destined for a mass die-off in the next couple of decades. Oh, yeah. It's a great doc if you ever get the chance. Well, I think I probably avoided it because I wasn't in the mood for a mass die-off in the next couple of decades. Uh, But he's presented... (laughs) He's not presented as... A totally plausible expert. He's presented as someone who's. It's a portrait of this person. It's a portrait of an eccentric guy. Okay. Who who you can't quite figure out. You have an instinct that perhaps it can't all be true, but you're not. You can't really see the joins. Well, that's always the fascinating thing about people like that, isn't it? Because part of you has to consider the possibility that they may be right, and that it is 
just part of the human condition that we live in denial of these kinds of yes. things and that we tell ourselves that that person is a catastrophist or an odierist or yeah. a pessimist of some kind in as far as s-town is concerned the way they did that was to tie it all up by suggesting that he'd been poisoned by the mercury he was using i found that fairly plausible didn't you i did but but then i found myself feeling guilty wanting to believe that a little too much because it enabled me to discount a lot of the depressing stuff that macklemore was obsessed by do you know what i'm saying yeah yes it's just great storytelling. I think it's amazing that I didn't feel cheated, given that it was, as you said, in the end, a kind of portrait of a very intriguing character, but not. it didn't have a sort of wider point. And there were great peripheral characters as well, you know, all yeah. the people around. There was the fellow in the background who had been shot in the head or something. Yes. You felt like they had to introduce him because he yeah. kind of trodden on all over their interview his interviews yeah he would be in the background and he'd be basically interjecting and punctuating yeah every, everything. that's right oh yeah oh yeah just money it's just all about money, money. Oh, oh yeah you better believe it Mm-mm. yep money mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep the one i the scene that stayed with me for some reason was the one at the tattoo parlor yeah. Do you remember that? I think early it's, on. Yeah, early on. It might be like the end of the second one. And and it just felt like, oh, wow, he's in a small town tattoo parlor. And, and everyone seemed to be kind of getting drunk and a little bit out of control. And you just felt he... And Brian Reed was absolutely... It was kind of immersive journalism of a great kind. Yeah, quite brave. Yeah. And, um, Very exposing and interesting. And he was, at that point still investigating the possibility that there had been a murder and that one of these people who was actually in the bar at the time, I think, Cabram Burt, was responsible for killing some guy. That's right. And people were sort of saying, well, why'd you go up and ask him? He'll probably tell you. Yeah. And he was like, well, maybe not. That's right. And how did you get on with Brian Reed himself? Because he's definitely from that sort of This American Life NPR school of journalism. Do you remember there was a story on This American Life at one point? About how they were getting hate mail about the voices of some of their... Exactly. I think I, I made a note of it. This American Life episode 545. If you don't have anything nice to say, say it all in caps was the name of the... And uh, one of the segments on there it was described like this. Recently, This American Life has been getting a lot of hate mail about the young women on our staff. Listeners complain about their vocal fry. Ira investigates the phenomenon. And, and vocal fry is creaky voice. Creaky voice, right. And so it's it something that, like yeah, you get a lot with American women particularly. And that's why this story focused on that. And actually, I, I was a bit frustrated by it because I don't enjoy vocal fry. No, but a they, lot of men do it too, to be fair. Well, that's the thing. Well, you said go. to be fair. To be fair, yeah. But that was to be fair. That's fine, to be fair. What about um, triggering? That's another one. Oh, triggering. What did people say before triggering? This may contain upsetting scenes. You know, like it was like some people may be upset by this. Yeah. What did people say before intersectionality? <sighs> Gay? No, but I mean, <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're like, what? I don't even know what that means. It just means when one issue crosses over with another issue and cross fertilization. Yeah cross-pollination hybrid 
are affected by the same issue. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so Vocal Fry, but on the This American Life piece, they very much spun it as sexism, that listeners were just excusing... And perhaps they were misogynistic emails. In fact, it sounds like they were A lot of them were, messages. I think, yeah. They just basically didn't enjoy hearing intelligent women on the radio. Going... Uh, going... Um, Maggie claims that she hasn't been out of the house. Oh, this is not good. <laughs> it's hard to do, isn't it? So hard. So guess what? I decided to investigate. But the first thing you do when you're doing a story on lobsters is get a lobster. That's quite good. But that's easier said than done. And another thing is, I've always been afraid of lobster. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite that good. And as you pointed out, it's certainly not an exclusively... Female no, it's not just trait. female. But it, the thing is, you've got it, it's married to a certain style. It's not, it's not just a vocal style. It's married to a certain kind of literal grammar, you know, a certain way of writing. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of studied insouciance, or maybe it's a genuine... In, it's informality reified and made... You know, so instead of saying, I have decided to bring you a report about lobsters, you know, it's like... So, there I was, looking at a lobster. You know, like... It's that bringing conversational, informal, conversational speech yeah. and saying uh, that's how we're going to do this. And the, the implication being that this is somehow more straightforwardly honest. Yes. And of course, sometimes it can end up being more artificial. And so, certainly to English ears, because it's rampant on national public radio in America, not just on This American Life, in a way that it really isn't here. So to English ears, you're listening to the radio and thinking, it's a bit like straighten your back and sit up at the table and just talk. Robert, you know, it's because you you just sort of it feels a weirdly like um, lack of effort or kind of a phony attempt to be super relaxed. Yeah, and the argument that they made on when they talked about it on This American Life was, well, this is just how we speak. There's nothing we can do about it. But actually, I think that's a bit disingenuous. And the thing, the reason I brought it up was that Brian Reed does it. Yes, in S Town, he does it a lot. And the thing is that he only does it when he's doing his scripted voiceover pieces. Right. When you hear him interacting with people. That's interesting. In the field. Aha. He doesn't doesn't do it. Because as part of his regular conversational patterns, it would be... Are you sure? Does he not do it when he does... He does it on the phone, yes. He does it on the phone a little bit, but not not that much. It's a different thing. On On the phone, when he's being told the sad news about John Macklemore killing himself, he is upset and so that's a different thing but then there's a tone of sadness and emotionalism that creeps into the end of his sentences a lot when he's just doing his voiceover i've got some examples for you here we go i want to play these to you because i i don't know i I sort of got obsessed by it and i'm not sure if i'm imagining it or not very mean-spirited to focus on someone no it's a terrific anyone who hasn't heard it spoiler alert uh, it's an amazing podcast. Oh, God, yeah, it's great. And this is uh, this is just sort of S-level S-town, if you like. Here's some uh, Brian Reed vocal fry. E- emo fry, I'm calling it. Years ago, an antique clock restorer contacted me. Yeah, contacted me. An antique, an antique clock restorer contacted me. Uh, yeah, Brian, uh, can you go for a take? It sounds great, but just try... Can you just try... Uh, there's something happening with your voice. I don't, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I'll do it again. I'll do it again. Go for a take. It's just sounding a little bit, um, almost sort of too relaxed. 
Uh-huh. Well, I do want it to sound relaxed. I'll try it again. I'll try it again. Years ago, an antique clock restorer contacted me. <laughs> Is that what better? Both, no, but try again. Because like, I, um, I wonder without um, vocal fry, you lose intimacy, right? That would be the idea. So what does he say? What is the actual line? Years ago, an antique clock restorer contacted me. So here's what I would say. Years ago, an antique clock restorer contacted me. That sounds fine. That sounds like you're telling a story. Years ago, an antique clock restorer contacted me. It sounds more artificial, though, I guess. Years ago, an antique clock restorer contacted me. Years ago, an (laughs) antique clock restorer contacted me. Contacted me. (laughs) That was great, Louis. Uh, Can we we do another one for safety? And try saying... (laughs) Try try saying... I don't know. Is it contacted or contacted? I've forgotten. (laughs) Do most people say contacted? People say... The stress is on the first syllable, isn't it? I can't remember. I thought uh, let's get it both ways. <laughs> Just so we got it. Let's get let's get contacted as well as contacted. <laughs> And I'll tell you what, you could put a bit of emotion in the, just in the end there. How do, let's see how it sounds if, you're, if you've got a suggestion of sadness at the end of the line. Years ago, an antique clock restorer contacted me. <laughs> that's, that's, I did some upspeak. That's more like you're asking a question. I think we know that you have, what, what it would be great is, to, is, is a suggestion of, of sadness. Okay, I think I can do that. Years ago, an antique <laughs> Years ago, an antique clock restorer contacted me. That's good. That's no, that was too sad. No, that's good. Contacted. I love me. it. Here's an, here's another real Brian Reed one. And out of the back seat climbs Mary Grace with her cane, escorted by a middle-aged couple that I assume to be the cousins. I don't think that's even vocal fry. What is that? That's just up speak, isn't it? Cousins. Cousin. It's, a, it's like micro up speak. Cousins. It's like the l- end of the last syllable escorted by the cousin. Cousins. <laughs> that would be good if he was a singer, though, I guess, wouldn't it? Escorted by a middle aged couple that assumed to be the cousins. I also wonder with, because obviously the dean, the doyen, the maven of this world of, 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 sort of NPR radio is um, Ira, Ira Glass. He does it, yeah. I'm presuming he writes his scripts. He writes the scripts and then he reads them out as if he's not reading them out. So, I was sitting with Adam Buxton and I was sitting in a room. And you know how it is when a guy's scratching his beard and he's sitting across from me, he's wearing a cap. And he's got his hands on his jeans and they're too tight. And he's scratching his crotch and you're feeling sexually aroused. Well, this was kind of one of those occasions. And... Act one. It's all... I I don't know. I just... Can you do him? No, I can't. Um, but I would love to be able to. Oh, I've really, I, I really would. Because at one point, I, I listened to so much This American Life that I really thought, "Fuck, I'm, I'm close to being able to completely get him." One of his things is he, he doesn't pronounce his L's. No, like, well, he's got the same thing that Marin does. So he's got film. a soft L. He says film, film, film. Um, you know like, when you're watching a film, a film. Have you, you like, ever had? If I you're somebody that's ever had 
illegal, illegal trouble. Oh, no, illegal. If that's Who are illegal. you doing? Who are you doing? <laughs> Who are you doing now? I'm trying to say it like he does. He's the words like milk, 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 film. No, illegal. <laughs> I, don't, I don't recognize that. Illegal. They're the L's, double L's. Double L's? How does a double L sound different from a single L? Illuminating. He's fine with single L's, he can't do double L's. He can say mel. Is that legal or illegal? (laughs) Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Couldn't see you. Um, that was Louis Theroux. Hope you enjoyed that ridiculous rambly chat. And uh, I would like to thank Louis. I'd also like to thank my friend Mark, who let us record that conversation in his front room in his house in London one afternoon in June. And then when we had finished talking, we went and sat in Mark's garden. And Mark's an old friend of me and Louis. And so we uh, sat there and had a few beers, shot the breeze. And it was uh, a lovely evening. Uh, Thanks as well to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for production support and Matt Lamont for super edit skills. Thank you, Matt very much. Now, what else can I tell you, listeners? Not that much to report. Still waiting on the app at the moment. The stuff tends to move very slowly in the world of uh, a dotard like myself. (laughs) It's a little topical reference for you there. Whoa! It's not going to mean anything in the future, is it? But to put it in some kind of meaningful context, it's a word that cropped up in a relatively terrifying speech from the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un this week. And uh, I mean, the, the uh, t- terrifyingness 
of the speech was leavened somewhat by the word dotard when applied to Donald Trump. And I think it's safe to say that many of us were delighted by how appropriate this word was and uh, a word that we weren't familiar with before, many of us. Uh, sounded as if it was like a made-up insult. Uh, earlier on, I was talking with Louis about the word libtard. And this seems to be the same sort of thing applied to Donald Trump, a dotard. But no, it's a real word, meaning an old, uh, weak or senile person. But the thing is, I don't think Kim Jong-un came up with the word dotard. I think he wrote something in, or his speechwriters wrote something in uh, Korean. I think we have to thank whoever translated the speech for the word dotard. Why aren't they getting their props? I really don't think that Kim Jong-un should be getting any props. What with being bent on escalating uh, the atmosphere of fear, tension and impending violence in the world. I mean, yes, he looks terrific. There's no argument from me there. He's got it all going on look-wise. But I don't think he deserves extra credit for um, his language skills. That's just a personal perspective. So there you go. I got bitten. This is, I mean, I'm starting to say this as if it's a story. It's not really. It's just something that occurred to me. Uh, because my elbow, my right elbow is itchy. A week ago, though, exactly one week ago, I was in the woods on a camping trip in Dartmoor. I go out there. Well, we try and go out there about once a year, me and my friend, and Garth Jennings, you know Garth, friend of the podcast, and uh, a few other pals. And we uh, string up our hammocks and spend a couple of nights under the stars in Dartmoor. It's beautiful. And uh, we sit around the fire and tell stories and sing songs and set the world to rights. Um, but on the very first night, I sat down in my camping chair and we were all having uh, a bit of stew. Our friend Tom had cooked up a delicious hearty stew on the campfire and um, I was just about to tuck in when I felt a little tickling in my right sleeve, the sleeve of my fleece. And I thought, what the, what the? Yeah, I shook my arm a little bit to try and dislodge it. I assumed it was a ant, a ant. And I thought, well, get out, a ant. And I thought it was out. A minute or so later, I feel another tickle. What the A ant? What are you doing there? Boy, he's tenacious, I thought. And then I, I started to reach up with my left hand up the sleeve of the fleece to try and sort out the situation. As I did so, I felt a sharp, hot needle of pain in close proximity to my elbow. And I got bit. It was really unpleasant. It's always such a shock when you get bitten by a, one of God's creatures. I haven't had a sting for a while. But if you can't see what stung you, it's a little bit more alarming. So I was like, what the heck is up there? 
so I withdrew my hand quickly and I, and I pinched the outside of the sleeve of the fleece to try and, you know, um, immobilise whatever was in there munching. And there was a significant lump in there. You know, not, not an ant, in other words. So then I sort of kept hold of this lump and uh, turned the sleeve inside out and was able to see that it was a big old spider in there. Big bulbous abdomen. And the abdomen was dark in colour with sort of blue markings. And then I looked it up. When I got home, I looked up, you know, spiders that might bite you. And it looked, I tell you, like a false widow spider to me. That sounds bad. And they came over to the UK relatively recently and there was a certain amount of interest in them, a few news stories about them. But actually, you know, it's no worse than being stung by a bee or something. But still, it was a bit of a shock. And I didn't know that at the time. And I started just imagining, my brain went crazy imagining, oh, this is a new species and it's all, it's climate chaos and... Deadly spiders are now happy to live in this country and they come over on a fruit crate. I don't know what. And now they've crawled up Buckles' fleece and and they're munching. So I was a bit uh, distracted by that. And sure enough, it was quite painful and it swelled up. Not alarmingly, but a bit. And then it's been sort of going through various stages throughout the week. Itching and... The, the pain has gradually ebbed away. Uh, but I survived. Oh, I'm a trooper. Anyway, that's what I was doing this time last week. Getting bitten by a false widow or whatever else it was, I don't know. Well, that's it for this week, I guess. Uh, back next week with another. Until then, do take exceptionally good care. And uh, remember that I love you.